Matthew chapter 17, verse 1 to 13. And we use the ESV translation uh, if you're wondering what version we are using. And we're in the middle of a series on Matthew's gospel. Thanks, Joel. All right. Um, this is Matthew chapter 17, 1 to 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Thank you, brother. Would you join me in prayer? Our God and Father, we ask that you may bless the reading and preaching of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know if you are anything like me, and hopefully you're not. Um, when I'm going through a really hard time or uncomfortable kind of sacrificial serving or something like that, I often kind of have to remind myself that things aren't always bad. And, and one of the ways I do that is I, I picture in my mind like beautiful holidays I've been on and beautiful places I've been. At the start of the year, Maddie and I had a, a great time. We went away to the Hunter uh, for our 10-year anniversary. We went to this beautiful kind of, uh, I don't know, lodge thing, and it was way crazy good, better than we deserve, and we just had the most lovely time. We then went down to Central Coast and stayed at this beautiful place that um, we'd been gifted as well at Bells at Killcare. And again, it was way lovelier than we could you know, deserve or pay for, and it was so nice to be there. And I just have this enduring image of sitting on these lawn chairs by the pool and drinks being brought to us and just the comfort and the joy and the peace and the sunshine and the no kids and this is a beautiful vision in my mind and I often recall that thought uh, when when things aren't very good to kind of just remind myself oh everything's not as bad as I think it is and there are good times uh, it, you know they are you've had really great times in your life I don't know if you ever do something similar like that. You have these visions or images that kind of give you hope and strength and, and give you perspective and remind you. Well, as we've been studying through Matthew's gospel, uh, we said last week that Matthew 16 and 17 is like this giant roller coaster ride. Um, as we come up Matthew 16, we get this beautiful vision and view that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he will build his church, that the disciples, you know, that through their preaching, they've got the keys of the kingdom of heaven, even, and it's all up and up and up. And then they come crashing down and the view is shattered. And Jesus says that the only way for him to build his church is by dying. The way up 
is down. The only way to truly live is dying. And then as we were crashing down the roller coaster last week into, you know, Jesus's death, he then said, oh, and by the way, if you want to follow me, that's your path also. You are going to have to die as well. If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow or deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So we hit the, the rock bottom. Jesus is going to die and we have to die with him if we're to be followers. It's, it's a picture of you know, suffering and pain. Uh, but then, uh, just sort of like what I do when things aren't going well, I, I imagine these luxurious moments to remind myself. Jesus then gives a vision and an image to a select number of his disciples to give them a picture that amidst suffering is glory and that it's not all just one or the other. The disciples, and perhaps you and I are similar, we might be tempted to all or nothing. All glory, kind of prosperity gospel, victory, come on, everything in Jesus, resurrection power, we're going forward, we're triumphing. Or perhaps we're all suffering. Oh, everything's so bad. How are you? Oh, terrible. I'm suffering. My life sucks. But actually, the way the gospel and the way the Christian life works is it's glory and suffering going together. It's this roller coaster up and down. And perhaps you've experienced that. When we get to chapter 17, we are going up and up and up and up and up and up and up, almost to the heavens at the top, where we have this incredible vision of who Jesus is really is it's this vision where the you know the the humanity of jesus is sort of peeled away and his divinity shines forth it's a vision given to peter james and john to give them strength and courage and to bolster them for the suffering that is going to take place it's a vision to inspire hope and instill courage in our souls it's a vision far better then sipping drinks by the beach, um, and bells at Kilkeel by the pool. Um, it's a vision that will actually provide us hope and comfort and courage. We're going to look at this text in two parts today in order to fill our souls with a vision of his glory. Point number one, sights, sounds, and sufferings. Point number two, look, listen, long. So two points, really, and the way the structure is going to be explaining the text and then applying it. So let's jump into point number one, sights, sounds, and sufferings. Sights, sounds, and sufferings, the story explained. As I said, you'll notice that in this text that this is a private event uh, designed for the display of Jesus's glory for these select disciples. It's a moment of divine instruction from Jesus, their teacher, primarily for their benefit, not so much his and now ours. It's not just a random event that the disciples happen to stumble upon, but instead it's a planned lesson in their discipleship curriculum. Jesus is taking his top three disciples on an excursion to see something, to know something, and in turn it becomes instructive for us also. But I want you to notice in the text just how deliberate this moment is. This is no accident. If you look through, look for the words them and and him. Um, So verse 1, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up on a mountain and was transfigured before them. Verse 5, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice said, you know, spoke to them and then they fell down and they are comforted by Jesus and then Jesus instructs them. 
So as we look on at this passage, we're not meant to just view it as this, whoa, this amazing thing happened. This is an instructive moment designed to teach the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and also us. It's here to inform us and teach us. It comes in these kind of three words, sights, sounds, and sufferings. So let's look at this vision and let's look first at the sights and sounds in verses one through eight. Let's read verse two again. So they're up on top of the mountain. We don't know which mountain it is. Doesn't really matter in the long scheme of things. Verse two says, and he, that is Jesus, was transfigured before them, or the Greek word metamorphosis, that kind of idea. He was transfigured before them. And his face, picture this, shone like the sun. It shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And behold, that's not all, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him, that is Jesus. This is an incredible jaw-dropping scene, like potentially hasn't been seen, uh, other than maybe God revealing himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. This is an incredible moment. Perhaps it was daytime, perhaps it was night. It's hard to know. Um, If it was night, it would have been the brightest sight they had ever possibly seen, where Jesus's humanity was stripped away and his divinity shines forth. His face shines like the sun. This glory of God, his divine being and essence flowing from internally, externally out. When Moses saw God, his face shone, but it was reflected glory because he saw God and then his face became bright. But Jesus has internal glory that shines out of him. His clothes even are taken up in the process. His clothes shine whiter than white, better than any nappy sand oxy action could ever do. It's a lifting of the veil so that we can see his divinity. It's very much like a picture of Moses on the mountain um, in Exodus 24 and Exodus 34, where God reveals himself in light and in sound. I mean, it's an incredible moment. A picture that stuck with Peter, he writes about it in 2 Peter chapter 1, which you can check out at another time. It's an image that stuck with him all his life, an image he could never forget, burned into his soul. And it ought to burn into our minds and our psyche. We'll talk about that later. And then we see these, another thing we see is these heavenly visitors approach. Uh, Moses and Elijah. Again, this is another sight to behold. I'm not sure how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. I don't think they'd seen them before. They didn't have like display pictures or little Zoom names down the bottom, but somehow they knew it was Moses and Elijah. Perhaps Jesus told them later or there was just some way of telling. And they are there. Moses representing the law and and Elijah potentially representing the prophets. And this is a direct link to the Old Testament and showing how Jesus is the summary of the law and the prophets. Both of these guys had conversed with God on mountaintops. Both had seen a vision and image of God's glory. Both also had famous departures from the earth. Moses dies on a mountain, but no one ever finds his body. So there's some question. Maybe he didn't even die. He just went up to heaven. Elijah was taken into heaven in a chariot of fire and was never to die. Moses, the great lawgiver. Elijah, the great prophet. Moses, the founder of Israel's religious system. And Elijah was the restorer of it. 
And finally, the reason why both Moses um, and Elijah are there most likely is that both of them have prophecies which link them to the coming of the Messiah and the end of the world. In Deuteronomy 18, it said, God said to uh, about Moses, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. You see that direct link to our text? It is to him you shall listen. So a great prophet will come, to him you shall listen. Of Elijah, it said in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So both of these men, there was an anticipation that before the Messiah came, there had to be a great prophet. And before the Messiah came, there had to be another Elijah-like figure. And here they are. And so this is very much tying together this idea that although Peter didn't want Jesus to be a crucified Messiah, God is confirming again, Jesus is the Messiah. It's him. It's happening. He fits the job description. But then we've seen some sights. Now we're going to hear some sounds. Verse 4, listen to what Peter says. And this, you know, this would have been something dumb that I would have said if I were there. And um, in Mark's gospel, which we think Peter was likely involved in helping write, he even kind of includes this caveat as to why he spoke, because he didn't know what he was saying. He didn't know what he was doing. And verse four, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, I don't know what Peter was thinking. Perhaps he was thinking his three really equal people, Moses, Elijah, uh, and Jesus, they all deserve some special holy habitation. Not entirely sure. Maybe, I don't know, maybe he just wants to keep hanging out and having a party. I would have been like that. That would have been awesome. But then the vision just blows up again because not only is Jesus there, not only is Moses there, not only is Elijah there, but now God Almighty comes. Verse 5, and here we have sight and sound combined. He, that is Peter, was still speaking when behold, so that great word like, look, check it out. A bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, you should know these words from Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So these sights and these sounds, they culminate in God coming down from heaven and evidencing himself in a bright cloud just like he did when he filled the temple, just like he did when he led the Israelites out of Egypt and the Exodus, his Shekinah glory, this this bright cloud that represents his heavenly and divine being appears. And then again, he speaks from the cloud and he says those same words at Jesus's baptism. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, those two phrases are taken from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and um, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. 
and they pull together two themes of who Jesus is that the, that the like Peter and the disciples didn't really see how they fit together. Psalm 2 is a, is a psalm all about God being king and the enthronement of God as king. And it even talks about that God's son will come and be king. And so that's this is my beloved son. Uh, that's who Jesus is. He's God's son. He's the king. But then Isaiah 42 is one of the first songs of suffering or the servant, uh, the suffering songs of the servant in Isaiah. And it represents that the Messiah who comes is going to be a suffering one. And so for those who have ears to hear in, and they read the Old Testament properly, they should have been expecting a great figure, a great prophetic figure like Moses who would speak, a kingly figure like David, but also a great suffering figure like Jeremiah the prophet perhaps, these, these people that were just destroyed and, and looked down upon. It's both. And so when God says that, he's reaffirming what Jesus has just said about how he's going to build his church. Yes, I am the Christ. I'm going to do it by dying. That's my great mission. That's how I'm going to come and serve. This is the paradox of the cross and Christ. Both go together. The king must be crucified. And their response is the response of everyone who truly encounters God. They fall on their faces. Uh, they want to drive themselves and dig themselves under the earth because their humanity cannot bear the weight of God's majesty and glory. And then you see this beautiful picture of Jesus laying his hand on them and saying, fear not. You know, God doesn't want to just quake us and shake us and make us terrified, but he, he wants us to know who he really is and then comfort us with his presence. And then in verse eight, we see the last thing we see Everything's gone. Jesus is no longer shining. Moses and Elijah are gone. God is, the cloud is gone. And it's Jesus alone that they are left with. And that picture is a striking picture. It's a picture that's meant to remind them that they are to focus on Jesus alone. He is the most important for them. So verses one through eight, we have sights and sounds. And verses 9 through 13 show us the sufferings. I'm just going to read this text. I'm not going to spend a long time explaining it because we've already done some of the work. Verses 9 through 13 uh, reminding us that the suffering must happen. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them. This is like the roller coaster again. It's like the height and then tell no one of the vision. So tell no one of the most amazing thing you've ever seen in all your entire life. Zip, nothing. You saw God. You saw Moses, Elijah. Don't tell anyone. But this time it's not a forever secret. It's just until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So he's reminding them that first comes the suffering, then comes the glory. First comes the cross, then comes the crown. And the disciples, Peter, James, and John, asked him, because they're still confused, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And we've already had this discussion in Matthew chapter 11. You can check it out. And Jesus answered them, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. Verse 12, but I tell you that Elijah has already come. That was John the Baptist. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. And so... Also, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. 
Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So from the heights of glory, we come back down the roller coaster, back down the mountain again, and we face the inescapability of suffering. R.T. France, a great commentator, says this about this passage. The resplendent son of God of the mountain is the same as the suffering son of man. The death and resurrection, which is so recently predicted, remains his paradoxical identity. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things. He must be killed and he must rise again. And James Edwards says, the road to glory leads through the valley of suffering. So putting the sights, sounds and sufferings all together, we're given a visual and auditory feast. The roller coaster soars up again and crashes back down. We see Jesus and in his pre-incarnate glory. If we're ever tempted to think of him as not that great, here he is in his greatness. We hear of his preeminence. God says, listen to him. Yes, Moses. Yes, Elijah. But Jesus alone, listen to him. But then there's the paradox. He is the suffering servant. He will reign as king, but he will reign by dying for his people. So that's, that's the picture that uh, Matthew wants us to see. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this scene. It's a very important scene. It's interlinked with the cross. They go together, the, the glory of the transfiguration and the inglory of the cross, and they have to stay together if we're to have a right picture and vision of Jesus. So that's point number one, sights, sounds, sufferings. Point number two, Look, listen, and long. Look, listen, and long. The story applied. What are we meant to do with a story like this? It's a grand story. I mean, we could just stop there and just be like, isn't that amazing? This is who Jesus is. Praise the Lord. Blessing, behold our God again. And we're done. We're good. But I think that if we focus in and meditate and stew on this passage, there are three things we ought to do in response to the sights and sounds and sufferings revealed here. We ought to look at the king, listen to the king, and long for the king. And I believe that's what this passage is here for us to do. That the main point of this passage is that we would look at the king, listen to the king, and long for the king Jesus. So I'm going to unpack each one of those for us. And I hope that it, it encourages us and stirs our souls. Firstly, look at the King. This passage commands us to look at King Jesus and to see him in his glory, to look at King Jesus and see him in his glory. We live, don't we, in a highly visual culture right now. Look, we're, you know, we're on screens. We're, we're looking at multiple images. I can see, uh, like no other time in history, I can look into everyone's houses at one time. Uh, that's weird. Big Brother is real. Uh, and we, we live in this visual culture. We are bombarded with images and visuals all day, even if we're not on a screen, but even more when we've got screens on our phones, the world around us. And the reality is, is that images 
stick in our minds. They have a particular sticking power and enduring legacy, don't they? It could be um, something that we've watched, the smiling, moustached face of Ted Lasso. could be the 11 a.m. blazers of Berejiklian or the blue and white ever etched into our eyes picture of a surgical face mask. Images and symbols linger in our minds long, just like those images of me going away on holidays, they stay there. And these images, they, they frame how we think and shape what we believe. Now, that's why companies use logos. That's why symbols and, and pictures are so powerful. And images, not only do they shape what we believe, they can provide us, like I said, with comfort, respite, and hope. Visuals and images can be used to help us through, to help us process, to help us have perspective and to see reality properly. In our day-to-day life, as we live for Jesus, it's so easy for us to have small thoughts of him, to have a domesticated and sort of pleasant view of Jesus. This can be especially true during times when we're trying to outreach or invite people to Alpha or tell other people about what we believe. Suddenly, even if we have glorious thoughts of Jesus, they shrink right down, don't they? And suddenly we get nervous and we think, oh, man, this sounds so silly and this sounds crazy. And yeah, I mean, he died, he rose again, he's coming back and like it's forever and we live in heaven and he'll judge. And and suddenly our our Jesus can become so small and, and can feel so insignificant. Also, as we live out our call to follow Jesus, perhaps you felt this, in the midst of suffering or in the midst of taking up your cross and following him, your vision of him can tend to become smaller and your vision of suffering and and uncomfortability and what you're going to lose becomes bigger and bigger. That's what it's like for me. Perhaps why I turn to my luxurious images uh, to kind of comfort me. And that's why we need this passage. Because this passage gets our attention. It demands our attention. God, the Father from heaven, speaks to Peter, James, and John and to us and says, listen to him and look at him. We need a greater and bigger vision of Jesus to be reminded that Jesus is no mere man. He's no mere human teacher. He's no mere prophet or leader. He is, as this passage has demonstrated, truly God and truly man. He is God in the flesh, God incarnate. He shines. He dazzles. When he's not covering his glory, his face is brighter than the sun. His whole body emanates with light and purity and power. And if we were to see him as he truly is, we, like Peter, James, and John, would fall to our faces like the disciples did. Friends, we need a a great vision of Jesus if we're going to live for him in our day-to-day. So many visions and images and symbols stick in our minds and, and demand our attention, but one ought to be there. One image and vision ought to give us a great sense of hope and courage and steel to face whatever comes our way. When we're evangelizing, when we're laying down our lives, this image of Jesus in his glory, let it fill your mind. Let it fill your soul. Let it remind you of who he really is. 
turn there rather than anywhere else to bolster that internal sense of hope and power and strength that we long for. You know, when the apostle, or he wasn't the apostle, but when the servant Stephen was preaching to the Jewish crowds in Acts chapter 7, just before he was stoned to death, again, another vision happens. God gives visions to his people so that they would be able to persevere under trial. Acts chapter 7 records this. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said to the crowds who were all about to stone him, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, listen, this is what happens when we have a vision of Jesus, a true vision of who he is. He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he has said this, he fell asleep. Do you see the link? Looking at the king gave him the power, the strength, the courage, and the confidence to love people, to take up his cross and follow Jesus, to deny himself even at the point of death. We need a vision. We need a mental picture of Jesus. Have you ever wondered what the book of Revelation is all about? Perhaps you're thinking about it now as, you know, rumors and things go around that we're in the end of the world, etc. This is what the book of Revelation is. It is a revelation. Okay, It's a vision for us to behold, to give us strength and power. The whole point of Revelation is not that we would know when the end of the world is going to come. If you're reading Revelation and you're more excited about figuring out when the end times are, A, you've misread Revelation because we're in the end times already at all times since Jesus resurrected is the end times, but that's another point. You've missed the point of the entire book because the whole point of Revelation is it's a vision to give us vision. It's a vision of Jesus that we would have a vision of him and then suffer through whatever comes in the persecution and troubles that come against us from the great dragon in our world. The point of Revelation is that we would see Jesus and see that he is the lamb who was slain, who conquers. We see that the blood that he shed was the blood of victory. To see that he's enthroned and that all nations will bow before him. That's the point of Revelation. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Seven times throughout the book of Revelation, the whole story of the world is told seven times over. And each time, the lamb conquers. That's the vision we need. When we look out of the world and we see coronavirus and we see leadership and we see political things going on, we see people all around us losing sight of the main thing. We need to draw people back to the main thing, which is Christ and him crucified. We need a vision of the king enthroned. And that's what Matthew chapter 17 gives us. So get a sight of him. I'm preaching to myself. Don't imagine your holidays. Don't Go to TV primarily. Don't have all these other visions to give us strength and solace and comfort. Have a vision. Get a sight of Jesus. 
and let it give you the strength and the power to be like Stephen, to love people to the end. So that's the first application point. Look to the king and see him in his glory. Secondly, listen to the king and hear him in his word. Listen to the king and hear him in his word. Well, not only are we obviously a very highly visual culture, we're a massively audio culture as well. Podcasts, music, speeches, newsreels, books, articles, blogs, so many voices crying out for our attention, crying out for that precious amount of time we have and information and knowledge we have in a day. What is gripping you at the moment? What are you listening to? What are you hearing? What's your favorite podcast or news channel or uh, books that you're reading? What's, what, what, what are you hearing and what's gripping you? Perhaps it's the latest news and stats and, you know, this many cases, this many infections, this many this or other doomsday predictions, or perhaps just trivialities to pass the time to get out of it. What we need is to hear more of Jesus. God the Father corrects Peter and says, listen to him. You don't need three tenths. You need one. Jesus, <laughs> listen to him. Listening to Jesus is central and essential for the Christian life. And we must keep listening to Jesus on repeat, continually, unceasingly, centrally, and essentially in our life, because what he has told us to do, what he has already done for us, and what he calls us to is so against our natural thinking and the natural thinking of our world. If we're listening all the time to the world and all these other things, even good, you know, nice entertainment, all this stuff, we're listening to that. None of that will ever tell us of the crucified Savior and the call to lay down your life and follow him. It will never tell you that. You could listen to the world's best podcasts, lectures, everything, fill your mind with books, and all that stuff is really great, but it will never tell you the gospel. It will never remind you that Jesus Christ died for your sins. It will never tell you, lay down your life and follow him. That's why listening to Jesus is central and essential. Because the way Jesus has designed is an upside down kingdom. We live by dying and he builds his church through suffering. And unless we hear from him daily and refresh the news feed of our minds, we will just be crying out, me, mine. My needs, my happiness, my wealth. But Jesus' words cry out, love God, love neighbor, make disciples, lay your life down and live for the future kingdom. How central and essential in your life right now is hearing Jesus in his word. The whole thing, 66 books, the whole Bible is Jesus' word. Do you go days, weeks? even months in your day-to-day -day life with Jesus on mute? If so, how is that going for you? How is your joy in the Lord? How is your peace? How is your holiness? How is your cross-bearing and self-denying going if Jesus is on mute in your life? And can I say, 
if Jesus is on mute in your life and you think your life is going pretty well, okay, maybe ask those people around you. Ask them how your joy is, how your holiness is, how your worship is, and how you're laying your life down is going. And maybe you'll find that it doesn't quite align with what you believe. God says to us, listen to him. Plug yourself in and hear because it's only in him that we have the words of eternal life. I wouldn't want you to miss out on the glory of what Jesus has to tell you. I wouldn't want you to miss out on the comfort of the scriptures, the hope of the scriptures, the courage of the scriptures, the joy of the scriptures. So friends, listen to Jesus in his word. It sounds so pedestrian. It sounds so churchy. It sounds like every sermon always applies. We read the Bible, but God is applying it to you today. Listen to him. Listen to him. It's your only hope. But it's not just listening. It's listening that leads to obedience. Mere hearing is not listening, biblically defined. Listening to Jesus is hearing his word and obeying it. I listen to a lot of podcasts and obey hardly any of them. I listen to lots of news things and then they go away and I never think about it again. We're not to listen in the same way to the words of Jesus. We are to listen and to fall and to heed his words and to live them out. That's why the mission statement of our church is we want to be a church passionate about knowing and applying the gospel. No mere hearers. But here's the reality. Look, look to Jesus, listen to Jesus. You'll never, we'll never do that. You and I will never do that if we've lost sight of him on another hill. We'll, we'll never really have this great desire to look to him or listen to him if we've lost sight of him coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration and going to the other mountain, the hill of Calvary. Because the transfiguration and the crucifixion go together. And it's in seeing Jesus on that hill, on that other hill, that our hearts are warmed again. And suddenly we don't have to listen to him and we don't have to look to him. We get to. We want to because our hearts are changed and they're warmed again by the glory of the cross. There's a paradox in the Christian faith, and one commentator um, puts it well between the two hills. In the one, a private epiphany, an exalted Jesus with garments glistening, stands on a high mountain and is flanked by two religious giants from the past. All is light. In the other, a public spectacle, a humiliated Jesus whose clothes have been torn from him and divided, is lifted up on a cross and flanked by two common convicted criminals. All is darkness. Do you see those two hills, transfiguration and crucifixion? On the hill of crucifixion, there's no light, only darkness. On that hill, there's no voice from heaven, only silence. On that hill, there's no crown and only a cross. On that hill, the great prophet, the great priest, the great King Jesus builds his church by dying for them. Glory and suffering go hand in hand on the hill of Calvary. And if you have that image stuck in your mind, you will want to look to him. You will want to listen to him because he has demonstrated his undying love for you by dying in your place. 
Listen to how Paul puts these two ideas together in Philippians chapter 2, a well-known verse. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's fix our eyes on him. The hill of glory, the hill of Calvary, where he showed his love for us. And then we will want to look to him and listen to him. How worthy he is of our attention, of our gaze, of our ears and our eyes and our very lives. So number one, look to the king. Number two, listen to the king. and finally. Long for the king. Long for the king. Hunger for his return. Jesus told the disciples to tell no one of this vision until after he had suffered and died. It's a stark reminder again for us that just like for Jesus, first comes the cross, then comes the crown. As we live for him now, we must suffer first and then comes the glory. The way up is down and the way to truly live is by dying. And knowing that suffering will predate our glory ought to make us long for him all the more. The church of Jesus Christ is born out of the blood of the martyrs. It's born out of suffering and sacrifice. It's born out of men and women all over the world, all over the ages, denying themselves, taking up their cross and following him in anticipation that one day he will come back that one day we will see him. We won't just read about what we've heard from Peter, James, and John, the vision that they saw. We will see him face to face. We will lock eyes on the glorious one, Jesus Christ, and we will hear his voice ourselves. Our resurrected bodies will perceive Jesus as he really is in his eternal resurrected ascended state. We will see him. We will hear him, and we will be with him forever if we persevere to the end. Also, friends, long for him. Long for that day when you will actually be with Jesus, where faith will turn to sight, where the words of these pages will become reality. Long for that day. Oh, how I long for the Lord Jesus to return. The Apostle John, who was there on this mountain, had a vision right at the end of his life in Revelation chapter 1. And this is what he saw. Again, another vision. I want to fill us with vision, sights and sounds today. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. They're the churches. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. 
From his mouth came a long, sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And look again, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death in Hades. Look at Jesus. Fix your gaze upon him and let this image flood your minds because this is what we will see on that last day. Long for him. In those gift packages, I gave you a copy of the Sovereign Grace Journal. I cannot recommend you read it more highly. There's an article in there, Revelation chapter 1, Getting a Sight of Jesus by Pastor John Loftness, and he says this, God gave this book to his church as an invitation to come to him. He calls us to himself to see him. As I've poured over this passage in recent months, it creates in me a longing to see Jesus. I can't get close to John's response. I've yet to get a sight that makes me drop to the floor as though dead, but there is grace in the longing. The more I look, the more I long to see. I want to see Jesus before I see all the problems in my church. I want to see Jesus before I consider all the corruption and temptations from this world. In seeing Jesus, we are strengthened. His beauty protects us from the beguiling temptations of the world. His authority and power help us to see the world for what it really is and bolster us to stand firm against the onslaughts of the enemy. In the sight of him, everything else falls into place. That's what this passage is here for. That's what Matthew 17 is there for. That's what Revelation chapter 1 is there for. In the sight of Jesus, everything else falls into place. So, friends, look to Jesus and behold him in his glory. Listen to Jesus and hear him in his word and long for Jesus and hunger for his return when our faith will become sight, when we will behold the glory in all of its majesty and beauty and transcendence. Do you ache for that? Do you ache for that glory, for that comfort, for that hope? Are you aching for security and peace and joy in this world? Well, the answer is right there. It's Jesus. It's King Jesus. If you're not yet a Christian and you feel this ache in you that there's more to life than this, there's meant to be somewhere better, there's meant to be something better, there's meant to be someone better, friend, the answer is Jesus. Go to him, look to him, listen to him, become one of his followers, and then long for him. Let us pray. Well, Lord, we come before you now with unveiled face, beholding the glory of your son. Would you transform us into the same image from one degree of glory to another? I ask, Lord, that you would help us to look and to listen and to long. 
these words, are, uh, this image, this vision is hard to communicate. It's hard to bring heaven down to earth. And God, I ask that you would, as a miracle, descend upon your people and declare your greatness to our hearts right now. For any who are weak uh, in their faith, not seeing you, distracted, confused, dazed, depressed, diseased, whatever's going on, would you fill them now, O oh Lord, I plead with you, with a vision of your glory, with a, a knowledge of your love poured out upon that hill called Calvary. For those who are encouraged, who are full of joy, strengthen it. Let it persevere. Let it intensify now as we continue to behold your glory. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.